I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. In this podcast, I'm talking to the top-breaking CEO in the most interesting segment of the insurance market anywhere in the world. Scott Perviance is the CEO of Amwins, the largest of the big three US wholesale insurance brokers. Because of this, he has the best view of the trends affecting the world's largest insurance market. And because wholesale is such an important escape valve for the market, any pricing, coverage or capacity pressures are immediately picked up by his organisation. His business also connects directly to the wider international markets and is a major producer of income for all concerned. Scott is relaxed, charming and engaging. He's also really smart and has an ability to both analyse and articulate the long-term trends that are affecting the market. In this interview, we dissect all the hotspots and crunch points in the US and get a sense of where things might be heading. We also discuss the fast-growing hybrid carrier phenomenon, broker M&A, and why he doesn't see Amwin stock heading for the public markets anytime soon. Enjoy the podcast. Many of you might have heard of the name Anaplan, but do you know how it's being used in our industry? I'm going to ask Connor Donahoe and Dan Ellis some quick-fire questions. Connor, what is Anaplan? Very simply, Mark, Anaplan is best-in-class cloud-based planning and modelling platform that just so happens to be used by the insurance sector very extensively. And what are we doing when we're, we're saying modelling, we're bringing everything together? Is this going to bring all the different parts of the business together that generally sit in silos at the moment. Exactly. What we're trying to do is really break down those barriers between different parts of a business. So, you know, we want finance talking to actuarial teams, talking to HR teams, and give them an environment that can really bring them all together and let them access their data all in one place. So we're in a business that often gets reporting demands upon it really quickly. Can Anaplan help with that? Say, for example, we had COVID and suddenly the finance department will have Mm. to start reporting specific COVID-related stuff. No, exactly that point. It's not only the speed at which you can produce the outputs of the report, but that also allows finance teams understand what's driving the numbers. So what we frequently hear from our clients is that with Anaplan, they don't spend time just preparing and producing the numbers, but they have actually time back now to analyse and understand the drivers. So if suddenly the price of a certain class goes up 40%, you can start planning because, of course, you may want to write a lot more than 40% more of that business because now it's very profitable. But, of course, then you have to bring in all the HR and all the other stuff that goes with it and also the timing of that income that might come in in the future. Exactly. You've got to be able to respond to these real-world changes and you've got to do it quickly while putting everyone together. And this comes back to this idea of having one area, one place where all of your different people within the organization can all access the same shared data and use it all together. And because it's in the cloud, it's easily scalable and everyone can access it. And that's how it works. This data exists in organizations today. It just so happens to sit within multiple different spreadsheets that are sitting on people's desktops, sitting in emails, sitting in chats on text messages. The data exists and a plan brings that together and allows everyone to access it. Thanks very much for explaining that. How do we get in touch with you? Very easily. Best way is probably to connect on LinkedIn, or you can check out anaplan.com. But to connect on LinkedIn, just search for Connor Donahue Anaplan. Or Daniel Ellis. And all the links are going to be in the notes. And thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Scott, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Mark, thanks for having me. Glad to be here today. I want to talk about the market because it's still a really interesting market. We've got a lot of client need out there. A lot of prices still rising. As someone who is a real channeler of client demand out of the US marketplace, where is that unmet client need greatest at the moment? Yeah, that's a good question, Mark. I'd say the market environment today is pretty consistent here in Q1, like we saw 
in the latter half of 2021. The property cap market has gotten more difficult again. You know, there was a lot of talk that it had run its course. And I think the losses in 2021 have certainly, as we entered into the tail end of, of 2021 and here in Q1, have further strengthened. And uh, we've actually seen pricing kind of move up here in Q1 on property cap. We're heading into kind of the big renewal season of 331. April, May, and June here on the U.S. property cat side. So specifically uh, there, Florida condos, there's been a lot of capacity that has left that segment. And so that is a portion of the property cat market. It's probably even more stressed than the broader property cat market. Cyber continues to be uh, another area where building enough limits to fill out towers is work. But I don't think any of those areas are, are new to anybody right now. So if there was new capacity available, you would be able to deploy that capacity pretty quickly. At the moment, your clients are still never quite getting what they need. Without a doubt, we could absolutely put new capacity to work. And we are working hard scouring the globe for potential new sources of capacity, certainly on the property side. And again, does it seem to be that the underwriters just simply at the moment with Property Cat, it almost feels as if they've lost their confidence that they're starting to talk about climate change and other things. And again, are you coming up against that with underwriters? Because it's not a lack of capital. It seems to be a lack of risk appetite. Is that right? I think you're exactly right. There's plenty of capital in the market right now. Surplus is in great shape when you look at the aggregate industry. You know, I think it's, it's been a number of people that are shying away from volatility. And you know, part of that is if you're going to take the volatility and accept that volatility, you want to make sure you're getting paid the right price for it. And you know, maybe in the past, it was easier to get there when the volatility wasn't coming every year. Like for the last five years. And whether climate change, I mean, clearly climate change is an aggregate phenomenon. I don't think it's moved the needle in the last 12 months per se. I mean, it's it takes much longer, but people are thinking through the models and thinking through the accuracy in the models and how they adjust the models in their pricing. And so it's just kind of a reevaluation, I'd say. I suppose it's been such a run of bad experience that you can rate things on experience or exposure. And I suppose whichever way you look at it now, as an underwriter, you can say, well, look at the experience. Don't worry about the theory. What about the actual practice? We've had four bad years, one after the other. So I suppose the ultimate message for clients then is to expect price rises and to find it difficult to get all the capacity that you need. Yeah, I think in the immediate term, that, that is a consistent message that it's, it's not going to get much better in, in that segment over the next six months. We'll see what happens this summer if we make it through. Clearly, Q1 2022 from a cat loss standpoint is going to turn out much better than Q1 of 2021 when you look at the aggregate losses. I think it's going to actually be way below the average Q1 cat losses from what I've seen. The way I look upon a broker like yourselves, you know, as a fantastic wholesale broker with a great network across the states, I almost see you as an escape valve for all of this demand and for all the pressure points in the market. Your job is to try and take away that pressure when it's there. So what are the things you're doing to help try and solve some of these big problems, particularly in cyber and in property cat? Yeah, I mean, part of it is actually being out there and trying to source new capacity. And whether it's in the form of reinsurance or insurance, building proprietary capacity inside you know, our underwriting businesses. So in aggregate, Amwins underwrites just over $4 billion of premium of our $26 billion, right? So whether that's in our larger account underwriting business or our small commercial personal lines business. So we're constantly looking to bring new capacity that way. And property cat's an area 
where we built proprietary capacity for our brokers and to help them build out towers. And we've now added a DNO product and a, and a commercial auto product on that proprietary capacity to help our Amwins brokers bring solutions to our retail clients that are unavailable elsewhere in the marketplace. And how do you get that capital to come and play? Do you have to say we've got something special here on the underwriting or some of the data or just some of the underwriters you've got? Yeah, I mean, listen, obviously it is talent. You got to hire the right underwriters, but we've invested a tremendous amount in data and technology around building an underwriting infrastructure. You know, we've hired a lot of folks from the industry, from the risk-taking side of the industry. Mark Bernanke joined us two years ago. Previously was global head of property for Beasley. Just recently, we appointed him as chief underwriting officer of the entire group. So he runs our underwriting business that builds that proprietary capacity for our Amwins brokers. But then he's also chief underwriting officer over all of our delegated authority businesses now. And we're trying to demonstrate to our capital providers that we're here to make them an underwriting profit first. And we won't write premium if we don't think we can do that. And we have the scale and diversity of operations where we don't have to write business when we're an MGA to pay the bills. When you get into the landscape of smaller one-trick ponies, you know, listen, they need to write business to stay in business. And I think we were building a different value proposition on the underwriting side because of our scale. Do you ever think you would put some of your own capital in to really show you've got skin in the game or do you do that? We're a fee-based business. I'd say we invest a lot in our fixed cost infrastructure that's skin in the game. And we have 120 offices around the globe to source business for our capital providers. So we look at it that way. So we've had, depends on where you start measuring from, but let's say 16 or 17 quarters of rate hardening. And we know in those particular areas, and obviously there are other areas of the market like commercial auto and DNO, where we know we've had real crunches and of course, cyber. Are there any parts of the market where you can start saying to your clients that they could be prepared for some relatively good news? Because it is a rational market. And of course, there's no lack of capital. Listen, I think, you know, excess casualty appears where I think we've seen the bulk of the increases flow through there. We're seeing some better terms on renewals there. Non-cat exposed property, there's more willingness on rate in that sector. Commercial auto, the, the rate increases have slowed a bit in that sector after several years of, of pretty dramatic movement. So it, it's not all bad news. And, and at the same time, I mean, we've been in this environment of while there was a blip when COVID first emerged, it's really been a, a strong, broad-based economic growth environment. So you know, while prices are increasing on insurance, most businesses are also growing at the same time in this economic expansion we've had over the last five or six years. Yep. And on the casualty side is inflation. Well, obviously it affects everything. Inflation. Is that another thing that underwriters are using to beat you over the head when you're coming in with renewals? Another reason why they have to continue to increase the price of their insurance products? It is certainly a, a talking point that you hear more and more. And listen, I mean, it's hard to argue against it, right? It, it's reality. I mean, it's broad-based. You know, there's inflationary pressure across almost every sector of the economy now. And so it's hard to argue with it, whether or not they've seen it translate through losses yet. Yeah, I think there's certainly some impact that they've seen, but if things don't slow down with Fed action here in the States and we don't see inflation start to mitigate, then obviously it's going to flow through the losses and therefore be another component that's got to drive rate. What's your overall assessment of sort of how clients are feeling, how those retail brokers that you talk to every day that you service, 
how their clients are feeling now after nearly four years of all of this. Have, have they kind of had enough or they just have to take what they get? Is that just it? You just say, I'm sorry, guys, it's just tough. Or is that it? <laughs> now, listen, I think our clients in general, it was much harder at the beginning of the market cycle change. I think they've gotten better across the board at communicating kind of the state of the market. It's become much more obvious, I'd say, for more sophisticated buyers, what's going on. And so while there is always pushback and, and our job is to go out there and do the absolute best we can to find the right capacity at the best cost we can, I'd say it's, it's a little bit less surprise and shock and anger as it is people are getting worn out. But at the same time, like I said, most of their businesses are also growing. And so it's easier to swallow an increase in insurance when your core business is also growing at a good clip. When the economy is doing fine. And that shock came three or four years ago because there'd been such a prolonged soft market that preceded it. Is that right? Without a doubt. Yep. And we had plenty of clients and, and plenty of young brokers that hadn't even learned how to sell rate increases, right? Because the market had been soft for so long. So I suppose yeah, people learn quickly. That's the thing, isn't it? Well, I'd like to talk about that market cycle and where the excess of surplus lines fit into all of that. And if I use that analogy of that escape valve, would you think, obviously, we're at a time where that admitted market is rejecting some of that business and it's coming out to your market and then to the wider international markets. Do you think this is just a cyclical trend? It's just what happens in hard markets. And then if the market eventually starts to soften next year, year after... Will it start to recede again and start to go back to admitted market? Or do you think there's a secular trend here? There's something that's more permanent. I think it's a combination of both, actually. I mean, there's the cyclical nature that I don't think will ever end. I don't think the cycles will be as severe in the increases or decreases that we've seen over the last 25 years. But then I also think there's a secular shift at the same time. I think there's more and more sophisticated capital and sophisticated insurance and reinsurance organizations that are allocating capital to their non-admitted segments. And, you know, listen, freedom of rate and form matters. If you look at what's going on in the personal lines market right now, AIG and Chubb are both trying to shift a, a lot of volume from admitted to non-admitted, right? And it's hard to react as quickly when you have admitted rate filings that have to be approved. So, you know, the growth in the ENS market in general over the last 20 years has outpaced the broader insurance market. And I think it's because people would rather deploy that capital in that way. And quite honestly, if you go way back, the ENS market was really more made up of smaller insurance companies that had less capital. But now a lot of the ENS markets are owned by global insurance operations. And so the security, even though there's not a state guarantee fund, is more than adequate based on the financial stability of that insurance group, right? And the capital they have. And so buyers, I think, are getting smarter too, where ENS doesn't have the same type of stigma that maybe it did 20, 25 years ago. And is it just that risks themselves are getting more complex and more complex risk is obviously just occupying a greater market share of the economy? Without a doubt. I mean, risks are getting more complex. They're evolving rapidly. And ENS market is built for innovation, creativity, and, and response. So you're very confident that you're in the right segment for the next 20 years? We like where we are right now, yes. That's great. Well, you've got a great position in that marketplace. Given your position in that marketplace, something I've been documenting, and I've been doing quite a lot of interviews with different members of this new kind of cohort of what we're calling the hybrid carriers, I'd love to hear your perspective of 
What do you think is driving this rise in these hybrid carriers that are seen, you know, acting as almost portals between insurance and reinsurance? It's really interesting and phenomenal growth seems to be had by a lot of these players. Yeah, listen, it, it is remarkable looking today, the number of fronting options or, or hybrid fronting options you have compared to five, six, seven years ago, even. And listen, the fronting model, it's funny, it, it's not new. It, it's existed previously in 10, 20 years ago in our business and not always successfully. No, of course, fronting was more of a dirty word, certainly from someone with a background in the London market. And so what's, you know, because of there been trouble. Without a doubt. And state national really was the shining star that was able to do it over the long term and make money. And they built a great franchise. And I think that's why Markel bought state national. And, and now there's been a proliferation of capital raised for new fronting options. And, and listen, I think a lot of them are, are looking at the business differently, trying to invest in the right underwriting resources, whether or not they're retaining 5%, 10% or none. Do I think they'll all be successful? You know, I don't. I think we're going to have some of them that, that will run into issues. And, and when it comes to reinsurance collectability, and then therefore, you know, the exposure you've taken and on a limited amount of capital and the amount you've leveraged your capital on the gross premium basis. But on the other hand, they are very useful in the program marketplace in, in building and controlling your capacity better versus the traditional way of MGA programs was one-on-one and MGA with a single program carrier. And you could wake up one day and that program carrier, the management team has changed and their attitude or programs changed and you no longer have a program. Whereas if you use one of these hybrid fronts and you build out a panel of four or five reinsurers that you have a broad-based relationship across multiple programs, maybe, right? So it provides more stability and capacity for the program segment of the marketplace. So you think it's partly that classic thing that bad things happen to good people in hard markets, you know, some good MGAs just by no fault of their own, who've been producing profits, suddenly some of the paper behind that just say, hey, sorry, we're pulling out of this whole class of business. And I'm, I'm sorry, guys, but you have to find someone else. And of course, it's that instability. Is that part of the reason why it's having this resurgence now? That is absolutely part of it. And the initial cohort of these new carriers probably were almost all 100% fronting or wanted to be. And, and I think the reinsurers have put some pressure on them and said, you know, listen, you've got to become a hybrid and, and take 5%, 10% of the risk. We want to see that this insurance infrastructure that you're building is, is real and you're willing to put some of your capital at risk. So I think that's why you've seen a shift lately in the last maybe 24 months into more of them, you know, being willing to participate on these programs. And presumably for you, you don't see it as any kind of a threat. It's just a complimentary thing. I mean, this is something that you can benefit your clients with, I presume. Yeah, without a doubt. It's an additional mechanism to access maybe reinsurance capital that we couldn't access easily because they don't necessarily have a licensed paper in the States or you know just aren't willing to write direct insurance via that mechanism. So it definitely is a net positive. Well, obviously, as we know, once we get into our world, it becomes a very interconnected world quite quickly. And you're one of the largest producers, if not the largest. I don't know where there would be any official numbers to confirm this kind of thing, because it would only be by anecdote anyway. But you're one of the largest producers to the London market. Are you happy with the way that the London market's been performing over the last couple of years? Obviously, it's been re-underwriting its book, like most other markets. But have you been happy with the service you've been able to get? Yeah, listen, London's an important market for us. And, and we produce a lot of business into the London market. I think there's certain things they do well and other things less happy with, quite honestly. that You're present in the London market as well. 
So presumably, if anyone can get over these hurdles and problems, then it's going to be you, is it? Yeah, listen, we want to be a big supporter. I think personally, I think John Neal's done a terrific job. He's reacted a little bit to the rating agencies. I don't necessarily agree 100% with what seems to have been a shift in rating agency philosophy towards profitability of underwriting as opposed to financial security and having adequate capital. I mean, if you have enough capital and you're willing to take underwriting losses, should you lose a rating? And domestically, there's been a couple of carriers that that's happened to where there's been absolutely no risk that they couldn't pay any claims. They were overcapitalized and they got a ding on a rating. And, and I don't know if that's the right rating methodology. I think a lot of the market performance that Lloyd's has undergone was driven with some pressure from rating agencies and, and rightly or wrongly. Yes, at the last annual results, Lloyd seems to be back and the last business planning cycle again, starting to get a little bit more on the front foot. So hopefully, yeah, watch this space. And also, yes, of course, the rating agencies are standard pause are going to be renewing their methodology at the moment, which probably should be net beneficial to Lloyd's itself. So we'll see. Along with your other peers, you've been a fantastic consolidator of this wholesale broking space. And it's been one of the biggest stories of the last 10 to 15 years. You've built a business where effectively, it's almost like there are the big three of wholesale broking in the US. Do you think that is now something that is done in the way that we would have said, okay, before Aon Willis, but we'd have said, there's a big three in insurance broking and, and reinsurance broking. And now would you say there's a big three in wholesale broking? I think it's hard if you look at the wholesale broking landscape now to, to argue it's not a big three. And that's not at all criticism of- That's just uh, mathematics, right? Yeah, it, it is. And it was never as big of a marketplace as the retail side to begin with. And so the consolidation, you look at the number of, of deals that occurred in building you know, our firm and our other two competitors, it's not nearly as many as that happened on the retail side. I mean, the retail marketplace started out much more fragmented and the consolidation there has been- incredibly robust and continues, quite honestly. And we'll see the next phase on, on that retail side with some of the consolidators now getting together and forming bigger entities over the next five years would be my guess. I don't know if that surprised you that how many more small retail operations there were to roll up. Maybe there's this problem that they're all invisible until they suddenly get over a certain amount of revenue threshold that we always think that we're going to run out of new ones. Do you think we'll ever run out of smaller businesses to consolidate? I do. Listen, I mean, looking back over our history, we've done business with over 20,000 retail agencies for as long as I can remember. But if you look at the pace of consolidation over the last 10 years, and that I think I have it right, there's only 6,000 agencies left in the US with more than a million of revenue. And so I think, you know, last year there was 1,100 acquisitions. So if you continue at that pace, that would indicate six more years and you're really getting into small agencies then does that really matter strategically to you guys anymore? No, I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, when acquisitions happen, I mean, if we were doing business with the firm previously, we're clearly doing business with the acquirer. In fact, the acquirer is probably adding additional resources when they do acquire these companies. They have a, a more of a strategy on, on placement in their wholesale, approved wholesalers. And so it's typically not an issue or, or quite honestly a net net benefit whereas they try to consolidate who they're doing business with and we're on everybody's list. When I was a broker in the 1990s, that was the time of the great consolidation where Pat Ryan and MMC were vying to build global brokers for the first time on the insurance side and reinsurance side. 
Do you think the same thing is going to happen now that it's happened in the US, that we're likely to have a global big three in wholesale? Wholesale is a bit of a US London phenomenon, right? And part of that is market size. And if you look at the other geographies, they're just not big enough individual markets where you've needed a wholesale function per se, or the regulation is so different, or the number of carriers is so limited in some markets that wholesalers haven't evolved. You know, MGAs are probably a bit more widespread globally, you know, than a traditional wholesale broker in, in most of other countries. And so I think there's certainly interest on MGAs, you know, no matter where they are today. And so I think you'll see that segment consolidate. So you're saying it's really too simplistic to say that just because it happened in the States, it'll happen somewhere else because it's very different dynamics. Yes. Well, Scott, I mean, you are an expert acquirer of intermediary businesses. I don't know how many deals Amwins have done over the years, but it's far too many to count. It's been amazing watching broker valuations continue to increase and increase and increase. I kept thinking at 11 times EBITDA, 12 times EBITDA, well, surely this is like getting too high. And then 13, and now we're seeing 17, 18 times sometimes in some of these UK businesses that we've just been deals have done in the last 12 months. I've noticed perhaps you've been sitting perhaps more on the sidelines, probably because you've done all the business you need to do. I don't know. But what's your view on those valuations? Do you think we're finally hitting the point where they can't go any higher? Because you've been through a few cycles of this, probably as a business. Sure. Personally, I do think we've hit the peak, but I've said that previously, so I could be wrong <laughs> again. I do think with the changing interest rate environment, that will play into things on evaluation. You've seen in the broader public equity markets, growth is now not the only darling. And in fact, growth companies have moved backwards on valuation a bit over the last 90, 120 days. And so, you know, I don't think there's going to be a material decrease in what people are willing to pay, but I, I think I'd be shocked if you continue to see the trend continue up. On the other side of that, though, in the private marketplace, listen, supply and demand, right? There's a lot of buyers still out there with capital and there's relatively few really good assets. And so on those limited assets, who knows what happens on those processes? There's still a scarcity value, even if interest rates will be rising and uh, it makes people's return on investment hurdles look a bit tougher to get over. Yep. Without that. Obviously, one of the other things that's been happening in the last four or five years has been this amazing insurtech phenomenon. And it's something that has continued to surprise me. I, I would have thought that by now, after sort of year five or year six of this happening, that it would have been co-opted just back into insurance. And we wouldn't be talking about insurtech. We'd just be talking about insurance technology. But how have you reacted as a business to the whole insurtech phenomenon? Presumably, there's a lot of opportunity in a business you operate in such a long extended supply chain, there must be so many opportunities to apply technology there. Yeah, listen, we've been huge believers in technology since the very beginning of building Amwinds. And so we have continued to invest year after year and increase our investment on technology and making our core businesses better. We've never been big believers that, like some industry, that there was going to be this massive disruption by these insure techs. And insurance is a complicated business a policy is a legal contract, right? And, and buyers buy insurance once a year. And so to me, those are two fundamental things that some of the insure tech excitement missed is unlike other financial services, even where buyers use that product on a daily, weekly, you know, even monthly basis and the UI, UX interface and how you deal with it, that matters, simplicity in, in that. In insurance, buyers buy insurance once a year on their renewal date. 
And so I think that was one area where they overestimated the impact. And then secondarily, because of that, it is a legal contract. Most buyers, it's not their core skill. They want advice. So I think a lot of the insurtechs miss the value of the retail broker. And we're big believers in the value of retail brokers and the advice they bring. And so a lot of people have certainly shifted their model from direct to now supporting retail. And then some of the original MGAs are realizing, well, now we're going to have to become full stack and put our capital because we can't get enough reinsurance because we're not producing any underwriting profits. And so it's been interesting. And listen, it's a great thing for the industry. It's made everybody rethink how we do things and how we get better and getting better is important. But I can't think of anything that's disrupted the industry and say, boy, those guys really got it right. And they took a massive amount of market share from whatever segment, retail, wholesale, or risk-taking. I suppose you've put your money where your mouth is with obviously you acquired e-reinsure, which I suppose we'd describe as one of the oldest insure techs. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. E-reinsure has been around a long time and it's a very sound value proposition of just being more efficient in the facultative reinsurance placement of what you do. And it wasn't trying to disintermediate the facultative reinsurance broker or anything like that. It was just trying to make the marketplace more efficient. Your view on this, on the technology is that you love the technology, but you don't get carried away. Your feet are firmly on the ground in terms of you just want to get efficiency and anyone who can come and your message to any insurtechs out there is come and talk to us, but bring something practical. Yeah. And quite honestly, any of the things that are going on, I mean, we're investing heavily on the micro side of our business in a digital platform. And you look at that on personal lines, small cyber, small professional, you'll see more and more, I think, of that migrating to online transaction, full through digital transaction for our retail brokers. Nothing we're building is going to go around a retail broker. It's all to provide tools to retail brokers. And so if they can get something done, that's a $1,500 premium completely online without talking to one of our underwriters or brokers, then we want to do that. And then as the product scales and the dollars are more and and you need to talk to somebody, we're, we're fully capable there as well. So we are certainly investing on the digital distribution side currently. So it's digitize whatever makes sense to digitize. But not everything just for the sake of it, because it sounds good. <laughs> We've seen one of your peers go public last year. And perhaps in contrast to some of the InsurTech IPOs, it's been an incredibly successful one, the sort of one you wished uh, bought some of it at the time, actually. And obviously, you've been through different refinancings. And of course, they get bigger and bigger. And you probably end up with multiple investors at different times, at different cycles. Would you say that at some point, would it make sense to have that permanent liquidity of being on a publicly traded stock exchange? I tell you right now, we certainly don't have any interest or desire to be public. We handpicked our two institutional partners because of their long-term ability to hold investments. And we think running a, a private company and building a private company is the right way to do it. I mean, we, we think in five-year chunks, not 90-day increments. And we're very happy with, with how our capital structure sits today. We have almost 1,200 employee shareholders. We own 45% of the firm. We give those employees liquidity opportunities twice a year. While it's not a daily liquidity like a public company, we quite honestly have way more demand from employees to buy more equity than to sell right now. So that's more of our issue than getting liquidity at, at this stage. But then given the phenomenal growth you're probably experiencing, given the market conditions, surely at some point at the next five-year cycle, you say, well, hang on, I can't do it with two investors. I need to find four or eight or 16. And at that point, does it become unmanageable? 
Not really, because I mean, I mean, it's become almost as much work as doing quarterly results as a public company. We don't run a business that has a need for capital, right? So the only need is for shareholder liquidity. And like I said, our two primary institutional shareholders have a tremendous amount of capital. And we picked them because they're not five to seven year investors, they're 20 year investors. And so they don't have a need for liquidity. And if we can generate cash flow and the common on, you know, MA, the ability to deploy significant amounts of our free cash back into MA is less today than it was five years ago, just because of the consolidation, right? So we have plenty of liquidity to buy back shares if employees want liquidity. So we're thinking about it that way. We don't need to go out and find three new institutional investors in five years. And if the M&A is kind of done, then you can become more of a dividend stock. And so obviously those employees will be getting regular liquidity and dividend payments from you. We've returned several billion dollars over the last two and a half years to our shareholders through dividends, yes. So we won't be seeing an Amwin's ticker symbol anytime soon. But I'm very disappointed because I, I should have bought the Pat Ryan one last year. <laughs> no time soon. Yes. No time soon will you see Amwin's. Well, shame I can't invest then, Scott, because you've been doing a great business, great growth, and long may it continue. And thank you so much for taking some of the time out just to speak to me and run us through everything. And I hope you make it a regular fixture because I've really enjoyed talking to you and come back and talk to us soon. Absolutely, Mark. I'd love to do it anytime. Great catching up. Thanks very much. All right. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>